Welcome to the Fellowship of Christlike Growers podcast. We believe that agriculture is stronger when we help and support each other through the challenges and decisions we face as farmers. Our farmer sharing calls provide an opportunity to share and learn from each other's knowledge and experiences regarding the agronomy issues that matter most to our farms. I want to thank everybody for getting on here tonight, and, and, and basically a part of this call was to, to share and share amongst farmers, and we've uh, kicked this off by doing that. Uh, John, thank you very much for, for starting, starting the conversation, um, and I'm all for just keeping on going on with the, with the way we're doing it, um, just talking um, about things we we're doing and and what works and don't work don't work, um, but at the same time the the base of this call was to talk about carbon and soil health and and how carbon is beneficial to both the soil and the biology. Um, George, the host of this with Carbon Works, um, obviously is very knowledgeable on carbon and oxygen and what it can do for those things. So George, uh, uh, I know you've got to speak a couple times here, but if you'd like to go ahead and introduce yourself and uh, come on in here and let's start, uh, let's start talking a little bit more about on the carbon side. And we've already been talking about replenish and what it can do for herbicides, but let's also talk about what uh, carbon and oxygen, oxygen can do for the, for the soil biology. <laughs> Hey, yeah, great. Thank you. And uh, thank you to everyone that's uh, come on board tonight. And uh, thank you for, uh, you know, taking the time. I know, you know, everybody's got things to do and we're all busy, but uh, we, Jason and I have been talking about this. And also there's someone else on the call, uh, Jeremy uh, in Iowa, that we have been out here, you know, of course, sharing as much as we can. And we thought maybe we would take the make the effort to provide a format that we could all share just like what's been happening for you know the last 15 minutes which is just so awesome because this is what we are after is that we can all learn from each other if we're willing to share and i know that everyone on this call is of that mindset and that's so wonderful because that's the way we really can all grow together and we can all be successful and we all should be successful. And it's that willingness to be able to put this information out there and have it so that we can also critique it, but we can, we could even challenge it if necessary, but we also want to support it and help it to grow so that we can all do a better job in agronomy and farming I'm a 37-year farmer myself personally here in Florida. Uh, started out in permanent tree crops, got into row crops, got into vegetables. Uh, you know, we, we kind of do a lot of things down here in the winter that you can't do where most of you are because you don't have the growing conditions that we have. But then vice versa, when you guys now are growing right now and going into harvest this uh, fall, we're actually... Uh, dead in the water, so to speak. The permanent tree crops are still growing, but we really don't grow a lot of vegetables or uh, row crops in Florida in the summer. 
we just can't outrun the heat. We can't outrun the bugs. Uh, it's just we're in a very tropical, humid climate. And uh, the only good news is it uh, it drives all our snowbirds home for the summer. And we down here, the permanent residents, we get a break for a few months that we're not overrun by all the snowbirds. But, uh, you know, I, I say that in jest, but uh, not really. <laughs> uh, it, it is challenging here in the winter uh, when we get all our visitors. and. To give you guys an idea, this is why I started Carbon Works 17 years ago in 2005, was because we actually started having saltwater intrusion into our agricultural wells that was coming from the two bodies of saltwater I'm surrounded by, Gulf of Mexico on the west and Atlantic Ocean on the east. And this saltwater was infiltrating our deep 1500 foot agricultural wells whereas our drinking water is about two to three hundred foot in florida so what happened there were too many straws in the glass and basically with the massive amount of population we have in the winter uh we've got a permanent population now of about 21 million so we're the third large largest populous state in the united states now and with that many straws in the glass, basically it started depleting the surficial aquifer. And so nature tries to balance itself and basically it's replacing our agricultural water moved up to fill the void in the aquifer. So I had to start dealing with massive amounts of salinity to give you an idea, if you, I don't know which scale you might operate better on, I would think probably TDS. We operated around a five or 600 TDS 30 years ago, and it went to a TDS of 3,600. Now, if you're familiar with the EC scale, which is electrical conductivity, one, one EC equals 640 TDS. So the conversion, that's the conversion. We went to an EC of about five to six. Citrus goes south at about a 2.3 EC. Strawberries and green beans go south at about a 1 EC. Tomatoes can take a three and a half, and you could grow uh, grasses and hay and cotton in about a 6 to an 8 EC. So if that gives you some kind of idea, but your corn and soybeans would be in that lower range, probably in that 3 to maybe five, I, I don't think five, but three to four on the salinity level. So you can see that when my water went to an EC of six, I am dealing with a massive amount of salt that's insurmountable because we know, everyone, we all know that we have to have water to irrigate with. But this water, I was challenged to find a way to see if I could mitigate some of this salt that's in my irrigation water and basically, it became an idea that could I buffer some of that salt with the carbon, but then it led me through other levels so that I started out in California for the first five years in 2005 until 2010, and basically working all the way up to Idaho on the west side of the Rockies, where these so-called carbon products had been in use for decades and 
that's what led me into starting Carbon Works as a company, but as a vehicle to be able to deliver something that could complement our agronomy programs. And that's really what was the impetus for starting Carbon Works was to help other growers like myself who were in this situation that we were thrown into and it was no fault of our own necessarily. But yet then as I learned and started gaining more knowledge about agriculture and agronomy, I became aware that things that I had not studied, I didn't have, I do not have any formal school training in agronomy. I feel very blessed that I'm out here. I've been able to learn in the field and on the fly. And with like all of you on the call, we've been able to work with growers and, and other, you know, suppliers and other vendors and uh, university people and, uh, you know, state agricultural people to be able to gather a lot of information. And I don't know that everyone has been on my website. I think most of you have potentially that are on the call, but carbonworks.com was set up to share information, of course, certainly about our products, but really more about agricultural in general. And I mean, we do such a multitude of crops from basically from Florida all the way to, to California and Washington state. And of course, we've really concentrated the last 12 years in the Midwest on corn and soybeans. and this is why we're here tonight, uh, because of my presence that's uh, been in Minnesota, um, Iowa, Missouri, Illinois, Indiana, you know, now Ohio and Kentucky. But we really concentrated the last few years on helping uh, corn and soybean growers because our products are very well suited for in-furrow and also as now our carbon, nitrogen, I like to say enhancer, you know, the other groups call their carbon uh, or their nitrogen stabilizers, you know, a stabilizer, but we know that, you know, unfortunately a lot of the chemical ones are biological killers, but, you know, that's the way they, they operate. But we tend to want to operate with carbon as a food source for the biologicals but we also want to bring energy and oxygen because we're looking for that better balance in our agronomy program. And that's bringing all three things that actually are the macro. You know, we, for a lot of years, we've been trained that NP and K were the macronutrients. And then we've got, of course, all the minors in parts per million. But in reality, when we look at nature or we look at the plant tissue analysis, we have less than 10% of a plant and even our own bodies are very small amounts of NPK and all the micronutrients. The macros are actually the carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen. And that's even stated in one of the, the agricultural guides, agronomy guides out in the Western United States. The Western Fertilizer Handbook states that the macro items needed to grow are carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen. But it goes on to say that, well, you as a grower don't have to worry about that, that Mother Nature takes care of that. And I am in 100% agreement with that 
if we are in a native field or a native forest that's not touched by man, it does work. Everything is in harmony. I will say, and I think most of you hopefully would agree, that on our farms, with everything that we're doing in our cultural practices, we are not addressing CHO maybe as much as we should because we didn't realize that how important that natural cycle is. And this is what we decided on trying to initially share tonight with about soil health. The one thing that I think certainly we all know, and I everywhere I go, all over this lower 48 United States that I'm, you know, seemingly every week somewhere, you know, I one time said with my designer for my website, uh, we ought to have a thing there, uh, put a, uh, a little quote on the website that says, where's George and a question mark. And, that, you know, come up with some way to, you know, have a little fun and say, where's he now? Okay. Because last week I was in Illinois with John and some, some new growers and some new potential uh, distributors in Illinois. And yet, Next week, I'll be in Missouri, and then the week after that, Iowa, and then two weeks after that, Minnesota, and, you know, here we go. But it's a lot of fun for me to meet you and to share with each of you as best I can, but we certainly know we all only have so many hours in a day and so many days in a week. So we were hoping that this call would give you an opportunity to ask questions, to uh, basically, of course, gather information, share information. And that's what I'm hoping as we go forward, that if you, the other participants here tonight, who I'm very grateful for and thankful that you took the time to be with us, is that if you have areas that you want to talk about, or if you want to learn about, we will try to gather that information or the people that we know that could participate in our call. So we certainly welcome your questions, we suggestions, comments. We would like to know what you might think would be valuable for you because we want your input. We don't want this to be something that we're just directing out. And this, as you can tell already, this is not not a sales call. We want to introduce our products if to the ones that don't know about them or how they might use them, but we certainly can leave it to our website or email. You email me or go to our toll-free number and call me and, uh, you know, ask your questions or give me your comments. But we certainly want feedback, and we'd like to have the opportunity to, to share just like we started out tonight. So this is how I got into carbon, and as Jason alluded to a little earlier, it's not just the carbon. What we're after is a, a balance of carbon, the hydrogen energy, and oxygen. And when we say oxygen, I know sometimes that gets sounds nebulous and a little mysterious because we've got right now, we're all breathing 21% oxygen in the atmosphere and, of course, 78% nitrogen. And you know with, that makes up 99% of our atmosphere. And, of course, everything else is in minute quantities, but very important. And it's just like our CO2. You know, these uh, uh, things that are going on in our you know world today uh, are all very interesting, and I'll leave it at that. But the CO2 in the atmosphere has changed a little, but 
for a long time, the measurement was 0.035. That's three and a half hundredths of 1%. So we know that it's a very small portion of our atmosphere when you consider that our atmosphere is 21% oxygen and 78% nitrogen. And of course, that's how the balance works for the forest or untouched nature that man hasn't you know, messed with. Then it operates in a system, an ecosystem that works. And of course, there's all the soil biology and the soil health that's so important. And then there are the things that are taken in from the atmosphere and then water and the nutrients from the root system. So this is how this all evolved for me being a non-agronomist and looking at, okay, how does it work in nature? And that's what I've spent the last 17 years learning and trying to understand and to find ways that we could complement what our agronomy programs need to be on our farm and put them in better harmony with how it's supposed to work in nature. That's what we are after at Carbon Works is a better plan, a better system that's always evolving because things change and they have to change. They need to change and we have to evolve with it and of course, I think we all as growers have spent a lot of years and a lot of money and a lot of time basically trying to undo things that we had already done. And then this is a part of what has changed in our world since World War II, because the prominent predominant use of synthetic chemicals and fertilizers has all appeared in agronomy since World War II. So in the last 75 years is where we have predominantly adopted these type of chemical, synthetic uh, nutritionals or fungicides, bacticides, herbicides, you know, on and on and on. Y'all know it all. I know it. We know it. So, but I'm of the opinion that that modern agronomy has taken us a little too far in a direction that we probably now wish we hadn't have gone. I believe very wholeheartedly that we should be better stewards of our soil, especially our microbiology, microorganisms that are in our soil, in essence, so that we can then in turn fix things that we see above ground. We sometimes you know, judge everything on what we see above ground, but we don't really dig in deep enough to figure out what's going on down in our soil. Well, we talk about it, you know, and, and of course there's a lot of, you know, more attention to that in the last say five to seven years. Now I've been in on my little path for 17 years now, but you know, we were pretty much a minute microcosm 17 years ago, 10 years ago, even, but it's in the last five to 10 years that there's been much more focus in agriculture, even in, say, the trade magazines. You see so much more now about the so-called soil health and that people want to be green, you know, so to speak. But that's a good thing. I mean, because we, I think, took it for granted for a long time and a lot of growers have suffered on their farms because they really probably unfortunately were misled or misinformed about the necessity of taking care of your soil health and 
the soil biologicals and what they actually need and what they actually do, of which we're still learning. I mean, we know very little about two things on earth. One's the ocean, and we know very little about our soil health. And we're learning, and that's a good thing. And like this tonight, I think we're moving in a better direction by paying more attention to what is actually going on and what needs to go on in our soils so that if we have a healthier soil, we certainly at some point would have a healthier crop. And that's really why we have put together programs and products. And these are not just carbon. These are biological products. Uh, They could be fish products. They could be uh, specialty, you know, uh, nutritional products, uh, things that are still part of the chemical synthetic world because I think that we all kind of would hopefully be on the same page that we can't abandon everything that we've done for the last 75 years overnight. It's kind of like what we're going through right now with the country wanting to be more ecologically favorable you know, climate or whatever they want to call it. But yet the reality is, is that we cannot get off of fossil fuels overnight. It's not practical. It's not even physically, by physical chemistry, not possible. So I think, again, in our agriculture, we're looking at the same thing. But we have started some programs to reduce some of the inputs that we might have become accustomed to over the last 75 years. And one being, and I'm not going to pick on anything, but we know that anhydrous ammonia has a very detrimental effect on soil biologicals. Uh, I don't know if y'all all all know this. I'm the dummy. I didn't know it until recently. I'd never looked up the word anhydrous and the word means without water. So what happens, you put anhydrous gas in the soil, it basically would try to attract the water to it. And basically, it would dehydrate the soil. And of course, then you would in essence, be shutting down the biologicals, the good biologicals, because you take away their water, you take away their oxygen or food, then you can shut things down and like our own body. So these are the kind of things that we, through this call and future calls, we would love to have and offer the opportunity to have future calls as you would want us to uh, with ideas and other subjects. And uh, we've got a lot of people on here tonight already that have a lot of talent in their respective areas. And for me, what I wanted to do and offer to you was a a platform where we could share. And so that's kind of how in a a few minutes, uh, background and ideas of uh, what Carbon Works is about. And our mission is to share information and knowledge and Hopefully, uh, we all gain something out of it. Thank you, George. Yes, sir. Does anybody have any questions or comments or anything at this point? Oh, come on, Jeremy. Is Jeremy still on here? (coughs) 
looks like everybody's muted except for John. But I didn't mute anybody. Okay. George, can you, this is Armin, uh, can you explain a little bit, uh, Jason was telling me about uh, how he used uh, one of your products with uh, nitrogen and it didn't cause the plant to shove the phosphorus out to the edge of the leaves and burn the edge of the leaves. Can you kind of explain that process a little bit better uh, for me? It wasn't phosphorus. Okay. It, was, well, it was nitrogen. I was putting 32% out. It was the salts then, wasn't it? He was shoving the salt. The phosphorus was pushing the salts out then, wasn't it? Well, I don't know the, the, in the, which the situation is, Armin, but what I would say is carbon is a buffer to the salts. And that is one of the characteristics or traits of carbon is that it actually, of course, we know can hold a positive one hydrogen ion and it can hold a negative two oxygen ion at the same time. That's the beauty of carbon is that it is the ultimate building block and that's why it's the basis of organic chemistry of everything in the world that grows is has a carbon base because of that affinity that it can hold two different valences at the same time. But yet carbon is the building block for sugar, but we have it in this way we're using it, Armin, it can actually buffer salts. And then of course we're using it as a carrier in carbon works products because they deliver a tremendous amount of hydrogen energy, a very low pH, but they also deliver a very high molecular oxygen also encapsulated in that carbon atom. And then carbon being biological food, it actually is feeding your beneficial biology and, and being AKA the aerobic biology that live in oxygen. It would be the reverse for anaerobic because anaerobic can't live in oxygen and they have a purpose too, but that's not who we're really wanting to be involved with our plant. In most cases, we want to do aerobic respiration and that's what we're after with the CarbonWorks products. Enhance your other agronomy inputs so that we can actually get a positive aerobic effect. Did that answer your question, Armin? Uh, yeah, it, it 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 did kind of, I guess. I'm because uh, you go Western Kansas, they use a lot of thirty two twenty eight, um, and they put a lot down in furrow, uh, not to mention the anhydrous word, but uh, what what they see is they also, when they spray it with a plane and that, or put it through the sprinklers, they'll see a, a tip browning or a burnt tip. And I don't think they understand that they're harming that plant, but I don't really know how to explain what the mechanism that's causing that and why this would... Okay. Uh, that this would help that. 
So. Okay. Okay. I, I understand a little better where you were going, Armin. Okay. Plants naturally always have tip burn first because the plant knows that the salt is detrimental to her. It, she knows that too much salt would kill her. So anytime a plant encounters salinity, it tries to push that salt to the very outer limit. You basically would sacrifice fingers to save your hand or arm. It's what the plant's trying to do. If you had to cut something off, you're going to start at the tip and try to work your way back. So you save the heart of the plant because then she can fruit and then she can remultiply. Okay, that's the reproductive that that's all the plant wants to do is reproduce herself. But what we're doing, Armin, is that with carbon nitrogen stabilizer, we're actually buffering some of that salt with the carbon so that we can still get the beneficial nitrogen that we're trying to get out of that 28 or 32 or that urea, but we're actually using carbon as kind of a, a, a literally a buffer as we're getting that nitrogen into the plant, but then hopefully minimizing or not having any burn at all. And our experience over now, over six years, Armin, that cetane put with the 32 or 28 at a rate of one ounce to every one to two gallons, we have actually controlled the volatization of the ammonia. You literally can stick your head in a tank of ammonia, a thousand gallons, if you'll put a two and a half gallon jug of the cetane in it first, you can stick your head in a tank but it's not just the stabilization like the chemical stabilizers shut down the biologicals, the nitrosomonas and nitrobacter. They actually literally are a bacticide. And we went a different route, Armin, to stay away from the chemical synthetic side with nitrogen stabilizers. And we're doing it with carbon, which is more friendly to the biologicals, but yet we also have the energy and oxygen. So what we're after is not only controlling and holding all three forms of nitrogen, the ammonium, the nitrite, and the nitrate, but we, we can hold that with carbon. But the benefit, the big boost with cetane is that it's a, a pH of two, has a lot of hydrogen ions, and you have a very high positive molecular oxygen because you've got to convert. Um, we are dependent in our farms for the biologicals in the soil to do that conversion. It's just like on our soybeans. We get 80% of our nitrogen for soybeans from the air. Okay, so, but it's got to be converted in the soil from ammonium to nitrite and then from nitrite to nitrate. So when we buy 32%, we, you know, we're, we're, farmers, we're workers, we're, we're, we're busy, we got a lot going on, but we don't stop and think about that that 32% that we just got delivered from the co-op is only 25% nitrate readily available. It's 50% urea and 25% ammonium. Now, the corn plant can use the ammonium and use it at the right time, which is typically later stage growth. Early stage, it needs nitrate, but the urea has got to be converted. And typically, we always said that we had to go out with our urea with around, hopefully around sometime we had some moisture or get a rain because that urea in NH3 has to pick up hydrogen ion. It's getting it from the water, 
before we came along with cetane because our cetane is so loaded with hydrogen ions to be down in the pH of two that we're actually providing the hydrogen for the urea to convert and then we're providing the oxygen for the ammonium to convert the nitrite and the nitrite to convert the nitrate. Yes, that makes much more sense to me now. Thank you. Okay, great. Yes, sir. Oh, great. I appreciate the questions. I, um, Hey, this is good. I, I thank you all for, for uh, you know, being with us tonight. And uh, any other questions or comments or suggestions? Uh, we, we're open ears. We're all ears. Well, George, so this is Jeff. <laughs> uh, I know you you mentioned, uh, you know, at two percent, at two on the acidic. Why is the product not acidic? <laughs> Won't burn you. Okay. Well, okay. Well, the pH scale, as we all know, goes from zero to 14 and seven in the middle is neutral. Okay. I didn't know, guys, until about 20 years ago, I looked that up. I didn't know that what pH actually stood for, the P and the H. I never knew that for 20 years. It stands for potential of hydrogen. Now, we didn't need to know what it what it you know necessarily what it meant but we needed to know where we needed it to be in our farm okay or our spray tanks that's what was important but to explain that you have to have more hydrogen ions to be below seven down to zero to be an acid now you can be a salt-based acid like most of our chemicals and surfactants and you know adjuvants are or you can be a organic acid so technically CarbonWorks products are organic acids because they have the low pH, they have the hydrogen ions, but they are tied to carbon, which is totally organic instead of being a salt. Now, when you go above seven up to 14, you have hydroxyls. That is a minus OH. So I this kind of dawned on me not too long ago that water is H2O. So if you've got hydrogen ions below and OH is above, you basically have split water into hydrogen and hydroxyls. Now, that goes into a whole nother realm for another time and another meeting talking about water. I mean, water is, is very unique, as we all know, but I can say that real quick. But explaining it, that's a whole different realm of trying to understand water uh, but I think you, it, all of you that have met me in person or we've talked have realized or seen my uh, photo that I have in my book of a pH meter sticking in a snowbank. Now, if you haven't seen it and you're on the call tonight, what would you think the pH of snow is? No idea. I know, I know. I think it's I think it surprised you. Go ahead, John. You know. <laughs> five. I don't know. Five five point four five is a very oh. typical one, but I can I can guarantee you most every snow bank I've ever tested in a lot of years has been below a pH of six. Um we never looked at it that way. We never looked at it, but I've talked to a lot of growers who've 
verified it through their agricultural experience over their lifetime that uh, there's energy in that snow. And we never really maybe looked at it that way, but uh, I can guarantee you your crops have looked at it that way because I've had many a grower tell me that uh, years they don't get any snow, uh, the crop is not as good as the years when they get a big snow. And it also affects the residue breakdown. Uh, you get a lot better residue breakdown if you have snowpack on top of it. I, I always would have thought that it was the, the moisture, the water of the melting snow and, you know, giving the biologicals water. But it was more than that. It is actually there's energy in snow. Okay, so what's the pH in in rainwater if if snows at five point four five? Okay, rainwater doesn't come from as high up in the sky as typically snow does. So, and plus at the time of year when you're getting snow, you've got much more energy in the atmosphere than you have during typically rain. And the way I equate that is that down here in Florida. Every afternoon at five o'clock, you can almost set your watch right now in June, July, and August. We'll get a thunderstorm, will appear, last for 15 to 30 minutes, and it may dump a half inch on you. It may dump four inches on you down here, but we get these thunderstorms that go up to 50,000 foot. But, you know, it's 100 degrees down here at sea level, and up there it's probably 50 below zero at 50,000 foot. But you've got this moisture, our tropical moisture here in, you know, with the trade winds and being surrounded by water and a lot of water in Florida, all of that moisture is drawn up in those cumulonimbus clouds, those thunderheads up to that 50,000 foot. And some of that water, of course, freezes. And unfortunately, as y'all know, and we know down here, we get hail, but we don't get a lot of hail down here because the water typically stays trapped in the thunderstorm. And as it comes back down to sea level, it melts. Now, the dangerous part of a thunderstorm is there's an angle on the side of a thunderhead that we call the anvil. And that anvil is up there in that 30, 40, 50,000 foot range. Well, the ice that is up there in that thunderhead, when it jumps out the side of the anvil of a thunderhead, it's it's solid ice. That, that's where hail comes from. Hail typically comes out from underneath the anvil on the side of a thunderstorm. And I know that from 40 years ago, uh, flying uh, for the United States Navy, flying jets off of aircraft carriers, that that was one place that we never wanted to have to go was underneath the anvil of a thunderstorm. And if you went to a thunderstorm, you didn't want to, if you couldn't get around it, if you were in blue water ops and there's nowhere to land but on the ship and you got to go back to the ship and land, you went through the lower one third of the thunderstorm because there was less potential for hail. We could take all the rain and two or 300, 400 miles an hour, we could take the rain hitting the windshield, but you did not want to take your plane through a hailstorm. That ice was a lot more damaging than those raindrops, even at you know, that kind of speed. But that's kind of one of the things that happens, you know, with how water uh, gathers that energy is heat is the release of energy, but cold is stored energy. And I know the ones of you that I've met in person and we've had those discussions. Uh, we spent some time on that, and I won't 
you know, spread that out tonight unless somebody wants to. But the idea is, is that that is how I came upon building CarbonWorks products to load them with energy was to be able to enhance the other things in our agronomy program. But as y'all already heard, the most important thing with the carbon is actually the oxygen. Because in reality, we all look at the photosynthetic equation. We all know that equation really well. But how many times do we take it through to the part that's talking about soil health? That's where we have the respiration of that sugar. Because we have as much as potentially, I think very readily, 50% of all photosynthetic sugar in every plant. Half of that sugar goes down to the soil, to the root system, because it's not only feeding the biologicals in the soil, that the workers down there that are building the root system and breaking down nutrients and sending that up along with water so that the plant can continue to build sugar, well, that working group, they are consuming, but they're actually respirating that sugar with oxygen. And of course, what is the byproduct of respirating sugar with oxygen by biologicals? It is, they're after the energy, just like we are when we eat food, but they're going to respirate it down into CO2 and water. Well, just happens to be the ingredients to build more sugar, but the biologicals are sending up the nutrients because of the breakdown of that sugar, those hydrogen ions is what the biologicals are after. That in turn actually determines part of the determination of our soil pH comes from the breakdown of that sugar. But that is strictly the reverse of the photosynthetic equation being the respiration equation and you have to have oxygen for the soil biology to break down the sugar. So George, this is Jeremy. You talk yes, a little bit since you brought up sugars in that, the different forms of carbon. Where where does your carbon come into this? Uh, we've got humic acids and fulvic acids and um, sugars and things on the market that that people can use where how do how do those carbons uh, relate to yours okay well our carbon originates in canada uh a great place uh uh nausea and uh our carbon is actually sourced through a, a separate company that actually makes their product in North Florida, in Jacksonville, Florida, but they make a humic powder that they sell worldwide. And this powder, uh, they call it humic acid like everyone else does, but if you dissolve their powder in water, it will be a pH of nine or higher, and it will have a very negative oxygen potential, ORP. Oxygen reduction potential will be a very negative in their humic powder. Now, I use this base powder to build CarbonWorks products, but the humic acids were what mystified me 17 years ago in California when they said they had a humic acid and I stick a pH meter in it. It's a pH of 12. It also happened to be a minus 492 on the oxygen. That's not a product that you put with seed or transplants or with 
anything that you actually want to have a positive outcome, that wouldn't be something that would enhance the aerobic bacteria. It actually would shut them down. Now, I being actually trained as an engineer 40 years ago, I was curious as to, okay, why do you call it humic acid? Well, after many years of research, they the only thing that I can even make sense of is that most humic original carbon sources, whether that's a soft cold, a linardite, a lignin, a peat bog, whatever, this original carbon source that came out of the earth is extracted predominantly in four ways. It's either extracted with aqua ammonia, phosphoric acid, potassium hydroxide, or sulfuric acid. So I guess it kind of picked up the acid nomer. To me, it's a misnomer because the actual humic acid they call that product is not an acid at all because to me, you'd have to be below a pH of seven. And I've never, to me to date, 17 years, I've never seen a humic acid that's an acid. Now, fulvic is an acid. Fulvic is a derivative of that same carbon that came out of the ground, but it takes a much longer extraction process and different methods to get the actual fulvic out of the carbon molecule. Now, why did I say all that? Well, carbon can be in the form of the coal. And the hard coal, the anthracite coal that has energy that you would burn in a furnace or burn in an electrical generation plant, that coal is much deeper and much more valuable than the soft coal we're talking about that typically the humic acids come from. But then we also have other forms of carbon. I, Jeremy, you mentioned sugar. We have uh, the biochar. We have diamonds. What's the hardest, clearest carbon on earth? A diamond. Well, those things that I just mentioned would have no value in the near term. And I don't know what how anybody wants to qualify the near term, but I'm going to tell you that everything I've read and studied over a lot of years, that the base inert carbon would not be readily available for biologicals for anywhere from 50 to 100 or 200 years. So who of us growers that are on this call would spend our money for something for maybe our grandchildren or great-grandchildren down the road? We love them, but typically right now, we can't afford the inputs that we got to have now. Why, how on earth could we put anything in the ground that would have that kind of future uh, potential lifespan, I guess you'd say. But this is where we have to look at, okay, what is going to be beneficial for our farm now or in a near term, I'd say one to two years or five years, is that what can we do today in our agronomy program? And this is where the difference is, is that you could have carbon, but it may not be necessarily beneficial to your farm anytime soon. It would just depend on uh, actually could it be enhanced? I guess you would say, like what we've chosen to do with my products is add a lot of energy and a lot of oxygen. So in essence, I guess what I'm saying is that I'm using carbon as a truck to bring you energy and oxygen to your 
agronomy program. I think that would be what Carbon Works is doing in a nutshell. Perfect. Great explanation. Hey, George, uh, can you tell me how structured water works? Huh. Oh, your, boy. That's a lot. Oh, you're starting a well, whole, new, <laughs> whole new program. <laughs> well, certainly there are benefits to what, and, and what I know of, of what I would say is the structured water that I've seen in Iowa and in that area that the structured water you have is a very unique water. It is, and we all know it is. And it has some unique characteristics. I'm not gonna tell you I understand it fully because I don't. We know a man in around near Chicago that does understand it, but uh, what has what we have evaluated in the field is that it has taken less of my water conditioner replenish when it's put with structured water we've had a significant, I guess you'd say, boost in my Carbon Works Replenish water conditioner through the use of the structured water. But Jeremy can tell you on this call that we spent a good year in Iowa going and testing water hither and yonder and everywhere in between, city water, well water, who knows where the water came from, but you know, we tested a lot of water all over Iowa and for a year, and we found you know so many variations in the water. But the one thing that we were able to do, I'm very proud of, is that by putting the replenish in the water, we could get to a constant level where we could help the chemicals or fungicides or nutritionals or herbicides, whatever, were going in the tank, we got more consistency by using the carbon in the replenish, but with, again, a lot of energy and a lot of positive oxygen, we could enhance the biologicals. Instead of knocking them in the head with a salt, we were actually feeding them a pure carbon. But it definitely works better with a, if the so-called structured water. But the oxygen in your product is every bit as huge with that for the the biology, right? Yes, sir. Absolutely. Because the aerobic bacteria are what we're trying to promote. And that's what's keeping all of us alive right now by the air we're breathing. But, you know, I've had people ask me, say, well, you were a Navy pilot and you were on that 100% oxygen. I said, yeah, we were on the, the oxygen when we were flying the jet, but that was only, you know, an hour or two a day. Um, we would not bode well if we ran 100% oxygen all the time. And I've had people look at me funny and say, well, why is that? And I'm, I, I believe, and, I, and I'm not a doctor or a me medical person, but my idea is that the reason the air is 78% nitrogen is because we need that nitrogen to rebuild the amino acids and proteins even in our own body, just like in our farm. We build plant tissue with nitrogen. And then we got to get it into reproductive. But our own bodies are continually degrading and decomposing and our cells are dying and regenerating. And that 
needs oxygen, but it also needs a large amount of nitrogen for the amino acids and proteins. And I'm I'm going to stop there. And and if if there's someone else on this call that's a lot more versed in that than I am in the in that biological world, but from a from that standpoint, but. Uh, that's why if we ran 100% oxygen, we had no nitrogen available. I think our bodies would basically just uh, eat ourselves. The biologicals would just eat us alive. Actually, it would kill you and you'd burn up. <laughs> that's, kind of, that's kind of what I thought, Nadja. That's why I wanted to stop where I stopped. <laughs> the, the chemical classification term of oxidizer comes from the fact that it provides oxygen to a chemical reaction. If you have excessive oxygen, um, you know, 50% hydrogen peroxide, for instance, I mean, you drip, dribble that onto your leather boots and they'll instantly catch fire. Um, so, yeah, too much oxygen is not a good thing. 100%, yeah, that would burn burn the crap out of, out of your lungs and kill you. And 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 well, if you were in a in a gas environment of 100% oxygen, your clothes would probably catch fire. Thank you, Nadja. I I I I only wanted to go so far on that one. I'd I'd leave leave that at, at, to your expertise because I knew it was something like that, but I didn't know the specifics. Our great creator knew what he was doing by only putting 20 or so percent oxygen in the atmosphere. Yes, ma'am. I 100% agree with you, Nadia. I'm. Uh, we're totally on board with that. That that premise. Yes, ma'am. And the one thing, Nadia, that I think all of us on this call, another thing that we will probably need and want to say for another night or another time. But with, uh, I know sometimes I get asked, "Well, your carbon works. You're the you're the carbon credit guy," and I'm like, "Oh no, no, I'm not. I I know a lot oh, no. about it, but I I'm I am not the carbon credit guy. Um, I I I I'm about the good carbon for our soil and in, enhancing our farms and our plant growth and not a shell yeah, game." Oh. All of this fear mongering about carbon dioxide levels in the atmosphere, it, it's absolutely ridiculous. What what and, and they're they're trying to, you know, scrub out carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. What a lot of people don't realize is that below 150 parts per million, which we were actually, I think we were around in the 1800s, we were late 1800s, we were around 180. So we're getting pretty close, but below about 150 parts per million, plants die. There's insufficient carbon dioxide in the atmosphere for them to live. So, and I agree a thousand and, and, percent. And the optimum carbon dioxide level for plant growth is anywhere between 1,200 and 1,500 parts per million. And as far as occupational health and safety standards go, as long as you're below 2,000, Everything's cool. You can work all day below 2,000 parts per million. So this whole nonsense about carbon dioxide levels, and, and it wasn't a whole lot long ago, like even I think about 1,000 or 1,500 years ago, carbon dioxide levels were way higher than they are right now. So... <laughs> 
Wait, wait. Do you think that's from Car- carbon dioxide is the gas of life? Everything living has carbon in it and gets it from the carbon cycle, which is pinned on carbon dioxide. So carbon dioxide is a good thing. It's not a bad it nasty is. gas. <laughs> that's correct, Nadja. And I appreciate you saying all that because that is one of the things that I think we're teetering here on some things. And there's some people out there in the world right now that are really proposing some crazy, crazy things to do to our planet and our atmosphere above ground and that removing the CO2 is a very dangerous thing because it's a, it's a very, you know, very minute part of our atmosphere already. And yet they think that they can suck it out of the air and pump it down on the ground. I even heard someone say on a business. Here's, here's the other dangerous thing about that pumping carbon dioxide down into the ground. You know, one of the things that the climate fear mongers will will say is that, oh, because of the high carbon dioxide levels in the air, you know, the oceans are absorbing it and they're being acidified and, you know, it's causing problems in in the ocean. Okay, so what they're saying is that by combining carbon dioxide with water produces carbonic acid and which can create problems for the organisms in the ocean whose exoskeletons are made out of calcium carbonate. So let's do a brilliant thing and take that carbon dioxide and put it under pressure underground where it's going to be combined with water and make carbonic acid in rock formations that are loaded with heavy metals. Brilliant. That's way better. (laughs) Uh, So, yeah, I don't know how much. I think they actually thought of that, and I think they're doing it on purpose, along with a bunch of other things that are counterintuitive for life on this planet. But anyways, that's my two cents worth. I think you're I think you're spot on, Nadja, that that is a very real thing that we here in this forum tonight even should actually learn more about and actually be spreading the word as we can be heard with those who want to listen. There's a lot who don't want to listen, but what Nadja just said, guys, is there's a lot of credence in that. I mean, I fully support what she said because that is exactly what happens because where does the CO2 come from? We breathe in oxygen and we breathe out CO2 and it's from where we eat food, carbohydrates, and our body's carbon, and we're actually oxidizing that carbon into CO2 gas, which then the plants absorb and give off oxygen. This is all good. This is the way the creator designed it to work. And when these others start messing with it, which they're messing with it for a reason, and it's money. They're chasing the money. You always know, we've always heard, you follow the money, you'll get to the to the rabbit hole, okay? It's follow the money. And what I was going to say, Nadja, is that two weeks ago, about midnight on Bloomberg News, I saw a financial program. I saw a, a person come on and say that he now was going to save the planet. He had figured out how to 
take the CO2 out of the air and pump it in the ground so that it'd be beneficial for agriculture, and he's going to be the guru. This person just happens to be the co-founder of Moderna, the COVID vaccine people. Oh, wow. He is the co-founder, and he stated it on Bloomberg TV. I saw it my own two eyes two weeks ago that he is now going to go be the savior for the climate control. Oh, yeah. So here's what they're going to do. They're 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 going to feed all kinds of corn. Continue to feed all kinds of corn to the population, so they get fat. And then they're going to kill them with the shots. Then they're going to dissolve them with with alkaline hydrolysis, dump them in the sewer system, and then take the sludge and put it on the crops. That's how they're going to get the carbon in the <laughs> into the soil. <laughs> Uh, I'm just having fun. <laughs> there's, I think there's 22 states in the U.S. that have legalized um, alkali hydrolysis for disposal of dead bodies. And then they dump it down into the sewer and then it goes to the sewage treatment plant and then they take the sludge and put that on farmers' fields. Yeah, yeah. Full circle. But here's here's the other thing too is is you know one of the things that that um, part of the carbon cycle. You know we talk about you know burning fossil fuels and putting carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, but volcanic eruptions can put massive amounts of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. And know that God is always in control. And so if we as mankind want to tip the balance and start to reduce carbon dioxide levels, it will balance itself. And we have not had any volcanic eruptions in a long time here in the U.S. Yep. Obesity, maybe? So... Uh, it's certainly a factor. Yep. If God wants more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, he'll put it there. Yeah. Well, does uh, anybody else have any questions or anything tonight? I'm getting tired. I probably shouldn't be speaking. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Naji, you're doing absolutely fine. <laughs> Absolutely. But we've, uh, I think we've had a great night. We've had a lot of information shared. Um, Does anybody have anything else? No. Jason, I just ask again, if, uh, if anyone wants to uh, have a subject talked about in the future or when you think you would like to maybe we, we are ready to help you and to provide this platform. And uh, we're, we'd love to know if you have other topics of interest. Uh, we've got people who've had uh, careers in uh, agronomy in both the private sector and the public sector that have been in retail, have been in actual individual, uh, you know, situations consulting. So there's a lot of experience here and, uh, you know, 
we would love to tap into everyone here. As you can tell, um, uh, there's a lot of knowledge here and uh, we can all learn some things and hopefully uh, put them, you know, into good practice on our, uh, you know, our farms. Absolutely. George, I got, I have one other, this is Armin again. I got one other question. Um, just thinking through this uh, oxygen and that kind of stuff. This sounds like this would be a really good uh, type of a product for, for uh, seed treatment and germination. Can you explain okay. a little bit more? It, it's great in seed germination, Armin, in the field. And the reason I qualify it that way, uh, as a liquid, Armin, I can hold the energy and the oxygen in a liquid form. If we dehydrate it, which would evaporate off the energy and oxygen to a dry form that would be a seed treatment, the carbon would still have a benefit of being on the seed, being pure biological food, but it would not have the energy and oxygen. That's something that we looked at and actually experimented with about 12 years ago. But we found that my liquid product in furrow with water directly on the seed enhanced the germination because in essence, we all know that a seed is a carbohydrate, okay? The seed come in a plastic lined bag for a reason because the seed would actually germinate in the bag if they could get to moisture and to oxygen. And I, 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 everybody, you know, has had a good chuckle with me before about that my aha moment, light bulb moment 12 years ago in Minnesota was in a farmer's kitchen with a cookie tray with wet paper towels and him germinating his seed. And I'd never seen anything like that in my lifetime up until 12 years ago. And my light bulb came on that there's no soil, there's no chemicals, no fertilizer in that wet paper towel. All that was added was water and oxygen to germinate those seed, to do a seed germ test in a wet paper towel. So where I'm going, Armin, is that I can provide more energy and more oxygen and a little more food because we plant our seeds depth based on the size of the seed. We're going to plant corn at about two inches and probably beans at one and a half. And But if we were going to plant a potato seed, you plant it down at 10 to 12 inches deep because you've got a two ounce seed piece. And the biologicals that germinate that seed actually are on it in that bag, but we've also got the beneficial, hopefully, biologicals in our soil that are going to help germinate that seed and help build that initial root system, which is built by the biologicals. So all of this that we're doing is to enhance that biological process of germinating that seed and get that initial root development going so that then the plant can take up the water and nutrients because we all know that the seed has enough goody in it to get those coddling leaves to the surface. That initial root is to pick up water and nutrients and get the coddling leaves to the surface so that you can get the sunlight and CO2 
to get the sugar factory going because that seed's going to run out of gas. So in essence, what Carbon Works products were doing in furrow is to increase the size of that gas tank so that we can feed more of those biologicals. So hopefully we get to the surface quicker with the plant, we get that sugar factory going. But it does work really well, the dark carbon I have in furrow with water versus trying to use it as a dried product uh, as a seed treatment. Um, I need to intervene right here. And uh, Najee, you may need to unmute yourself, but there's a, a volatile fatty acid that will deliver oxygen to the roots. Um, Najee, would, would you confirm if that's true or not? Um, I'm not sure if it delivered oxygen to the roots, but it certainly uh, supercharges the soil microbes. Okay. Well, I think the synergy of what think, I am think of a three-year-old with a candy bar or a sucker. <laughs> <laughs> well, when you have elements that are out there, we have NPK. We have manganese, we have boron, we have sulfur, we have molybdenum. We have all these elements, but the plant does not take it up in NPK form. It doesn't take it up in manganese form, boron form. It has to be transformed by the biology. So if you have a volatile fatty acid that would be responsible in helping deliver oxygen, to the root system, it has to have that element available. And then when you add carbon, carbon works, carbon with hydrogen oxygen in it, you are giving that element available to be delivered to them. Additionally, what I was saying about the NPK and the manganese and the boron, it's not being uptaked in the plant that, that way. It is taken up in a nitrite, nitrate version or a phosphate version. If you take nitrogen into a nitrate, it is NO2. If you take it into a nitrate, it's NO3. You have to have the oxygen element there to be make it available. So if you combine the elements that are available with the deliverers, that could be a big impact on our soil biology to uh, make it available to the plants. Same thing with manganese. In order to make it plant available, it goes from NN to NN. Oh, we're putting oxygen in there. It's very interesting. Yeah, the, the plant is is uh, it's what much more efficient for the plant to utilize those um, nutrients in the form of a microbial metabolite <coughs> than in the raw mineral form. They what they will pick it up in the raw mineral form, but it, the plant will use many, many, many times. The amount of energy to then convert to have to convert that mineral into a biologically active form as opposed to 
getting the microbes to do that and having the plant pull up a, a nutrient that's already in a form that the plant can use. All right. Does anybody else have any questions or comments? Or anything you want to uh, talk about next time? All right. Well, okay. Well, Jason, um, thank you. Thank you again, everyone, for participating. And um, we would uh, certainly offer to do this again soon. Uh, if that's a few weeks, a month, whatever. If you have some questions. Uh, you know, desires, wishes, uh, email me or email Jason or text us. Uh, you know, we certainly like your input and we'd want to, you know, share with you again uh, at some future point. George, when did you say you're going to be in Iowa? Uh, the first week of uh, August, uh, August 1st through the 5th. We've actually got a uh, field day on August uh, 3rd, a Wednesday. ISU's got a field day that we're going to be participating at their Agronomy RX and uh, group and CarbonWorks. Is, I'm going to be there to represent CarbonWorks at the uh, ISU field day. Be at cool. Dave Nelson's right. farm cool. south of Fort Dodge. Are, are, are we able to come to that if we're do we need that special invitation or anything? Uh, I don't. I'm not aware. Uh, Jeremy, do you know? I I don't know for sure. I haven't seen the agenda or what's specifically going on with this one. But get it. Uh, get get your contact info to me. I'll I'll find out. We'll 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 get an answer for that here real soon. Okay. Uh, that's Jeremy at agronomyrx.com for you guys that might not know that, but Jeremy uh, Swanson is there, uh, one of the lead agronomists at Agronomy RX in Webster City, Iowa. It'd be Jeremy S. Jeremy S. at Agronomy RX. Okay. Well, great, everybody. Thank you for everyone that... Uh, Really appreciate all of you, and uh, we're always here to help. And uh, please contact me anytime with questions, George at CarbonWorks.com. Uh, I'll try to get back to you as soon as I can. And uh, so thank you again. Thank you, too. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to today's call presented to you by the Fellowship of Christlike Growers. We hope you can join us again soon.